Last Sunday, we finished 1 Corinthians 12. The unity is in the diversity. In the church, the body of Christ, God has created this incredible diversity. He also created unity. God is a source not only of diversity, but also of unity in the body of Christ. We find that we're all different. We all are important. We actually need each other. We honor each other. We care about each other. We empathize with each other. And Paul is writing these to a church that was factional and divisive. One of the problems being the elevation of certain spiritual gifts, specifically it was tongues, and the problem of certain people elevated as being more important than others. So Paul writes a corrective. All the first Corinthians is a corrective, but he basically levels the playing field. He gives them and he gives us a cause to celebrate diversity. Last week we finished with verses 28 through 31 where Paul hammers home once again the fact of diversity, the value of diversity, and the fact that there is not one single gift that all of us are, are to have or, or are supposed to have. Then he moves on to where we are today, saying, I, I show you still the most excellent way. That way, love, love. Now, when we say the word love, many things come to our mind. I want to share a video about love from kids. I don't know what this means. Like you dance around with a boy. Hugs and kisses. Yeah, hearts in their eyes. That's snuggling. You just like really decide and test them if they're the best. I got another boyfriend because I didn't really like him that much. I'm gonna explain that question. I love my grandma because she gives me toys. A rainbow cat unicorn. I love cars. I love my daddy and mommy and my brother. My mom always gives me lots of kisses when I get to eat breakfast with my my dad doesn't like running. We have boyfriends. Love is much. I don't want to give you too much. You'd want that instead of my preaching. So that's okay. Kids. Kids. A lot of different things. As we grow older, we become more refined in our understanding of love, moving past some of what they shared today. But to really understand true love, we have to look at the creator of love, which is God. God created love. And his description of, of love in his words in the Bible, in the Bible. Today we're going to look at nothing to it. Nothing to it. As we look at 1 Corinthians 13, very familiar passage for a lot of people. 1 Corinthians 13, we're going to look at the first eight verses today and then finish it next Sunday. But 1 Corinthians 13 verses 1 through 8. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it is not envy. It does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Love, what, what is love anyway? Love is not just an idea. Love is not even the motivation for behavior. Love is the behavior. In fact, love is the action. Love here is not to be contrasted with spiritual gifts. That's the context of spiritual gifts. Love is in a different category altogether. Love is the, the way the spiritual gifts are to function, how we're to operate within the context of the body of Christ. Love is the foundation for spiritual gifts. It's the overarching principle or context. Love permeates, in fact, it, it flows through the spiritual gifts. It's, it's how spiritual gifts operate in action. Now, in 21st century America, love can mean a lot of different things. When I say word love, many different things come to your mind, including what those kids said. Emotions, warm fuzzies, it could be sex, it could be affection, it could be concern. There are a lot of different pictures that come to our mind. We say uh, love. And I always look at three words for love that are used in the original language of the New Testament. There are actually four different words, but we're going to look at three of them today. Um, the New Testament was written in the Greek language, three words for love, uh, which help us define love in a more precise way. The first one is eros, eros, which is physical or sensual love. The second one is phileo, which is brotherly love or platonic affection. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. That comes from phileo. Those two words were used predominantly by secular Greek writers when they were describing love. And, but these, those two words were not used in the New Testament that often in describing love. They, they used a word, a Greek word that was most often used in the New Testament and it was called agape, agape. It was called selfless love, selfless love. Agape is love defined by God's action in sending Jesus Christ into the world. It's love acted out, it's action. It's loving those who do not deserve love. Those who were unworthy of love. Love that puts other people's interests first. Love that forgives people and actually gives people a new start. Love that sacrifices for the good of others. Love that actually comes from the nature of the lover rather than the merit of the loved. It's undeserved love, undeservable love. That, that is agape love. Now with that kind of love, we're gonna look at three things. We're gonna look at the importance of love, we're gonna look at the character of love, and next week we're gonna talk about the permanence of love. So let's start today with Roman numeral two, the importance of love, the importance of love. Our lives consist of action, what we do. And as followers of Jesus Christ, most of us are, are pretty good people. We're, you know, we're, we do many good things. Our desire is to do good and to have a positive impact. There aren't many people here, that I don't think, that would say, you know, I, I've really wanted to be the, the worst parent I could be possible. Or I want to be the worst possible employee I can be. Or I want to have the reputation of being the worst neighbor everybody has. No, that's not, that's not our attitude. Most of us desire to be good and do good. That's just part of who we are. It's American, isn't it? Whatever. Well, the Corinthian, Corinthian people in this church wanted to do good too. But Paul says there's a missing ingredient in all the good things that you're doing. There's a missing ingredient in your exercise of religion. 
And that missing ingredient was love. It was love. Then he gives four gifting areas in which that love is missing. Four gifting areas in which that love is missing. The first one had to do with the verbal gifts, the verbal gifts. First one was tongues. These people in the Corinthian church were exercising their gift of tongues for their own good, for their own benefit to build themselves up. And he says, if you speak in tongues and use the gift of tongues without love, he said, you're just noise. <laughs> you're just clanging noise. Love says, I exercise my gift, whatever it may be, for the benefit of others, of others, actively seeking to build others up. Without love, he said, there's nothing to it. Without love, there's nothing to it. The second verbal gift that, that he talks about is something called prophecy. Prophecy. Prophecy is defined as speaking forth God's word. Now, this is a huge topic. We don't have time to, to unpack all of this about prophecy. Um, largely misunderstood. Prophecy is God taking a human instrument to speak his truth to that contemporary generation. Let me say that again. Prophecy is God taking human instrument to speak his truth to that generation. The primary recipients of all prophecy is the immediate generation. In other words, God said, I want you to say this to the people of your day. But prophecy is also multidimensional and can, it also includes future fulfillments, sometimes more than one fulfillment. That's where it gets complicated. We don't, we don't have time to get into that. But it's, it's a big, broad subject. But it's basically God speaking to people through a human instrument. And prophecy is, is predictive in that it tells people, this is what God says. If you fail to do what God says, then this will happen. Okay, do this. If you don't, that's what's going to happen. That's how prophecy is predictive. And sometimes it has an immediate fulfillment, sometimes in the future. That's the general idea. Speaking forth God's word to the people of the contemporary generation. Now, mo most often today, um, this happens in the preaching of the word of God in America's pulpits, in the, in the Christian church of Jesus Christ. Not exclusively, but a lot of it is God speaking through human instrumentation to God's people. And in the exercise of this gift, it's not a matter of this gift or love, or this gift motivated by love. Prophecy must be done by a person whose whole life is given to love. And if there's not love, it equals zero. There's nothing to it. If it's not with love, there's nothing to it. Ephesians 14, this, this is really one of my life verses, one of my, my mottos. It's speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. We will in all things grow up. I ask myself all the time, not how eloquent or how good or bad that message was or whatever it was. My question uppermost in my mind always is, am I speaking to people in love? Is this an expression of love from my heart? Now, we can talk about all the principles of morality, right and wrong, and encouragement, all of those things. And the question is, as you share the gospel, the good news of Jesus with other people, ask the same question. Am I sharing this out of love for them? Because without love, there's nothing to it. There's nothing to it. Verbal gifts. Now, we also have cerebral gifts. 
Number two, cerebral gifts or the mental gifts. He's talking about mysteries in verse two, mysteries, and they all knew mysteries, and then knowledge, knowing all knowledge. The Corinthians were enamored with knowledge. They liked mysteries. Now, I know that in the church today, we like to know all kinds of things. Some of you dig into the word, you listen to preachers on television and radio, on the internet, you wanna know more, you read books. We want knowledge, and, and our churches are full of knowledge today. We have lots of teaching, and we know it all, practically, we think. But without love, it equals zero, equals nothing, nothing to it. Then you have the faith gifts, faith gifts, number three. If we have faith powerful enough to move mountains, faith for incredible things, says if you don't have love, there's nothing to it, nothing to it. Then there are giving, number four, giving or sacrificial gifts. In verse three, he gives a lot of examples of great personal sacrifice. Giving everything to the poor, sacrificing my body. And he says, you can do all of that, but without love, there's nothing to it. See, the, the Corinthian church had all the religious trappings. They had tongues and prophecy, they had knowledge, they had faith, they had asceticism or self-denial. But God was not impressed. God was not impressed. They did not have the ultimate Christian ethic, which was love. And God says to them, and he says to us, there's nothing to it. Nothing to it. It's empty. has no effect, no lasting results. And we, as we look at our lives, we can have all the spiritual trappings, church attendance, church involvement, great worship, wonderful programs, giving of our tithes, giving to missions, volunteering our time to the needy, even, even the fasting, denial of self, abusing ourselves physically by overwork, whatever that is, personal sacrifices. But without love, it amounts to nothing, nada, nothing to it. As we walk through the next verses describing the character of love, realize, realize this, because usually we go, oh no, I, I'm not gonna measure up. <laughs> There's no way I can. Well, first of all, none of us can measure up totally. We ask the question, where do I fall short? This can be diagnostic and say, where do I fall short? And where can I, by God's help and his grace, develop and improve? Because this all has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We cannot love on our own. It has to be supernatural. God the Holy Spirit loving through us. Paul moves on to describe love in actions and attitudes. Now, it may be difficult to define love, but it's easy to recognize. Let's say that. Hard to define, but it's easy to recognize. So let's look at the number three, the character of love. The character of love. 15 characteristics, and we're gonna look at nine of them uh, and then continue next Sunday. 15 characteristics. Number one, love is patient. Love is patient. This is not so much patience with circumstances, although it does include circumstances. It's more about patience with people. Oh, patience with people. Charlie Brown famously said in a Peanuts cartoon, I love mankind. It's people I can't stand. It's the abstract mankind instead of people. Patience with people. People come up short, okay? Now, I don't know if you found this to happen when you're in the grocery line or something. For some reason, I always end up in the line checking out with a person who's a trainer, trainee. And it's like, I, I, should, I should pay more attention, but it's always somebody who's training. It's like, 
Oh no, they can't, they don't know what a rutabaga is. They don't know, they have to look it up. What's jicama? You know, they, they don't, what is this? You know, we, you know, that's what I say too, and Judy feeds it to me, but I, I eat it. What is, what is jicama? You know, you, and it's always a trainee, and, and it's basically, I think God is just helping me learn patience with people. I wait. I'm, I'm there to help people train, I guess. That's, that's part of my job. Gordon Fee says, love is patience and love is kind. It's respectively love's necessary passive and active responses to others. King James Version says it this way, that love suffereth long. And some of you say, I suffer long. Yeah, that's right. Well, God demonstrates this combination of patience and kindness. Patience by holding his wrath in the face of human rebellion. How many times have, have you deserved something you didn't get? And how many times have you prayed that God would open up the earth and swallow somebody up? Yeah, yeah, once in a while. That person deserves to be swallowed up. Yeah, we're not very patient when it comes to that. And then you have the kindness, which is God's grace. Mercy, mercy, mercy and grace are contrasted in the word of God. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Okay, we deserve a lot of things. We deserve God's wrath. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. So we have mercy and grace. And that's part of the, the two-sided part of this puzzle on love is patient and love is kind. Love is kind. Number two, kind. This is an active side of patience, an action taken, being sweet to all, being, being gracious. Many times in the practice of our faith, being concerned about morality and right and wrong were anything but kind, or it's not kind. Sometimes we're more concerned about being right than about being kind because it's not love. It's not love. Gracious means it's an active word. It's not passive. Actively engaged in doing good to others. Now, the Corinthians' beliefs were contradicted by their selfish behavior, especially at the church potlucks or common meals or the brunches and barbecues he had as a church. That's what it was. Now, let's move on to seven verbs that indicate how love is not to behave. Okay, this is, we started out by talking about what love is. Now let's find out what love is not. Love is not. First of all, number three, love is not envious. Not envious. The root word means envious or rivalry. It means we're not jealous. It's been said there are two classes of people in the world, millionaires and those who would like to be. And they go out and buy a lot of tickets. It's 1.6 billion, whatever it is now. It's like, oh my goodness, crazy. We want to be that. Envy produces covetousness. Now, there are two types of covetousness. The first type is seeing what someone else have, has and wishing we had it. Okay? You see something someone else has and wishing we had it. It's very natural. Um, Judy and I in the past have gone to the parade of homes. And uh, you go to the parade of homes, you see these houses. And oh my word, they have incredible things that are in these parade of homes. And we are always happy where we lived in the house we owned until we go to the parade homes. Then we, we want something bigger, better, newer, whatever it might be, because all of a sudden we compare. We, we want something better. It can be that brand new house. It can be the new 4x4 pickup, the new BMW, the Corvette, the SUV, the boat, the clothes, or whatever it is. We see, then we compare, then we covet. <laughs> it's insidious. We see we compare, then we covet. It just happens. We see something else. You just get a, something brand new and somebody else gets one that's newer, bigger, better. And we covet. Now the second kind of coveting is 
is more insidious. It's seeing what someone else has and wishing they didn't have it. <laughs> that's an that's a awful way to covet. But I wish I had it or I wish he didn't have it. Now the Corinthians here, in this passage, were coveting the most dramatic spiritual gifts. They, were, they wanted the most dramatic spiritual gifts. And, and coveting springs from that discontent. Somebody, somebody has a gift that's, that gets more attention or seems more important than me. See, coveting springs from discontent. What, what ways are we not content? You know, there's, it says godliness with contentment is great gain, but what ways are we not content? What does someone else have that you want? Okay, it should be easy. Should be easy for us to think about that. What does someone else have that you want? A material possession or wealth? Maybe they have a training or a degree. Maybe they have a job or a profession you've always wanted. A position or an opportunity. A reputation. Maybe they have talents and abilities. Maybe it's their family background or their looks or physical appearances. Maybe it's their girlfriend or boyfriend. Maybe it's their retirement. You know, there are, we can just compare all we want to and someone else always has more. In this particular context, it was rivalry and competition between gifts. What does someone else have in the body of Christ that you want? It's more than just admiring them for their gifts. It's like saying, I wish I had that. Jealousy, rivalry, competition. And we even have rivalry and competition between churches, our church and other churches. That's why I love the fact that, that I get to meet with about 14 other pastors in town and we're trying to expand that because we want to make sure everybody knows we're on the same team. We're on the same team. And every once in a while we have people go from this to that and we just communicate and make sure, are they doing okay? Yeah, good, that's, that's good. We wanna make sure that, that people are in a good church. And a lot of great churches in this town. A lot of great churches. Love is not jealous, it's not envious, it's not competitive. Not competitive. Number four, love does not boast. Does not boast. How many of you like to look good? You must, you all look great today. So just, just saying, this flattery will get you everywhere. Isn't that what it is? Okay. Does not boast. How many of you like to look good? There, there's a tendency in all of us, if someone else is not making us look good, no one notices, we'll call attention to it ourselves. That's right. The Corinthians had some spiritual gifts that were real attention getters and made people look important. Many spiritual gifts are operated just to get attention, just so say I'm important. The concept here is boasting to behave as a braggart or a windbag and it suggests self-centered actions where we try to call attention to ourselves. Proverbs 27.2 says, let another praise you and not your own mouth, someone else and not your own lift, lips. The contrast is humility or self-effacing, which protects us from having a false impression of our own importance. Realizing that we are all important in God's eyes. And we talked about that the last couple of Sundays, the importance of every single person in the body of Christ whatever you bring to the table. Now some people have an issue of false humility, which is denying that we've been given anything by God and we diminish our importance. Don't diminish your importance. That's false humility, that's not real humility. But love does not boast. Number five, love is not proud or arrogant. Love is not proud or arrogant. Pride here is the opposite of love. It's the opposite of love. Self-sufficient and self 
confident. Now, most of us do not act arrogant. Most of us don't act arrogant. Now, when I was a freshman in college and knew everything, I was arrogant. I was arrogant. But I was also smart enough to know that people don't like people that are arrogant. So I hit, tried to hide it. You know, so I was self-confident and uh, knew everything and uh, just kind of covered it. Well, we can be proud and arrogant, self-sufficient, and hide it under a veneer of humility. Because arrogance and pride appear unspiritual, we want to hide it. So, so we have, it's like M&Ms. We have an arrogant core of the veneer of candy. We look good on the outside. Well, sooner or later that candy melts. You know, I mean, you know how that goes. And people will see who we really are. Love is not arrogant. Next, love is not rude or does not act unbecomingly. It's tactful or polite. Some, some will excuse telling the truth without tact as spiritual. They say, you know, the, the gospel is an offense. And they will excuse being blunt, tactless, or brutal. Love is not rude. Love is tactful. Love is tactful. I know some waiters and waitresses, waitstaff and restaurants who hate working on Sundays. Why? Because the crowd is predominantly Christians or church people. And they've described to me people who are very demanding, arrogant, rude, impatient, and cheapskates. Small tippers. There's one guy who bragged he never, never left a tip of money, but something of eternal value attract. I thought, man, if you're leaving a track, you better leave a big tip. Christians ought to be the biggest tippers in restaurants. 15% standard, 20 or 25 for great service. Love is not rude. Love is not, not rude. Does not act unbecomingly. Number seven, love is not self-seeking. Does not seek its own. That has to do with selfishness. Now, our whole society is permeated by this value of selfishness. Should not seek its own means not its own, but the good of others. Gordon Fee says, in some ways, this is the fullest expression of what Christian love is about. It does not believe that finding oneself is the highest good. It is not enamored with self-gain, self-justification, or self-worth. To the contrary, it seeks the good of one's neighbor or enemy. We teach that Happiness equals selfishness. We, 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 it's, it's kind of a permeative value. John Orberg wrote an article in Christianity Today entitled, Happy Meal Spirituality. He writes, when we take our children to the shrine of the golden arches, they always want the same thing. If they get it, the trip is a success. If not, it's sheer misery. The odd part is that they are not after the food. They want the prize. The prize itself is a pitiful thing worth maybe 10 cents, but for the moment, getting it is all that matters. McDonald's, in a fit of marketing genius, gave this package of food and a prize a special name, the Happy Meal. You're not just buying fries, McNuggets, you're buying happiness. Their advertisements have convinced my children, he says, that they have a McDonald's-shaped vacuum in their little souls. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in a Happy Meal. Now, when you get older, you don't get any smarter. Your happy meals just get more expensive. All day long, we're bombarded with messages that seek to persuade us of two things. 
that we are or ought to be discontented, and that contentment is only one step away. Use me, buy me, eat me, wear me, try me, drive me, put me in your hair. Aren't people healthier, cleaner, richer, and smarter than ever? We live longer, eat better, dress warmer, work less, and play more than ever in the history of human race. But are we happier? Or are we just cleaner, healthier, better groomed, and sad people? The truth is that contentment is never achieved by satisfying our desires. Desires, once satisfied, do not stay satisfied. Our society, so advanced in many other respects, simply seem to have lost touch with this simple truth, and more than lost touch with it, we have made the quest to satisfy our desires, the foundation on which we teach people to build their lives. This preoccupation with seeking contentment through filling desires has led to a profound change in the way we think of ourselves as human beings. We now think of ourselves as consumers. In the past, human beings have generally identified themselves by what they produce, what they contributed. The shift from finding identity in what we produce to what we possess, from work ethic to consumption ethic, Consumerism is doomed to futility because to be made in the image of God does not mean primarily to be a consumer. The creation mandate, after all, was be fruitful, not shop till you drop. The Happy Meal Society cannot produce contented people. Even the church can be co-opted into becoming just one more dispenser of Happy Meals. The contented person is not the one who gets everything he or she wants because getting always leads to the desire for more. It is the person who has stopped wanting. And here's a quote I've used before. Who is more contented, the man with a million dollars or the man with 10 children? The correct answer, of course, is the man with 10 children because he does not want anymore. <laughs> Love. Is not self-seeking. Love does not seek its own. Eight, love is not easily angered. Love is not provoked, does not fly into a temper. Christian love never becomes exasperated with people. And of course, we all know that the Apostle Paul never had any children. Interesting, after we got married, Judy said to me, and we had kids, she said, I didn't know I had a temper until I had kids. Well, I, I knew I had a temper before kids, but that's, that's a different story. Proverbs 16.32 says, Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper, than one who takes a city. Proverbs 17.27, A man of knowledge uses words with restraint. A man of understanding is even tempered. How many of you had kids in sports or have kids in sports? Okay. Okay. You'll, you'll understand the, the parental desire for success through yeah, you know what it's like. One of Brittany's soccer coaches advised us at a parents' meeting. He said, encourage your kids, cheer for them. Never yell any sentence that begins or ends with the word ref. Okay? That's hard when you have your kids in sports. Not long after that, I was seated at a basketball game next to a young father and his five-year-old son. And um, he could not, I could see he was very uncomfortable, he could not comprehend the enthusiasm of some of the fathers in the stands with us that translated sentences beginning and ending with the word ref. So at halftime, I, I leaned over and asked him a question. I said, uh, I said uh, do, you, do you have, uh, does your son play sports? 
He said, yes. He said, uh, we play golf. And I didn't say, I, th I thought, what does he know? Is golf a sport? It doesn't even have a ref. I mean, what's the deal here? There's nobody to yell at. You know, so that's kind of the culture. Anyway, love. Moving back to love. Okay, number nine, love keeps no record of wrongs. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Take into account, the word denotes entering into a ledger. So you're writing it down. So many of us keep a ledger, we keep a book, we hold grudges, we seek revenge. Love forgets, love forgives. There are no records kept, we don't keep track. In a marriage, we don't throw things up in our spouse's face, that's not love. I mean, Christians do some of the worst things to each other. I mean, just name it. You think about the worst things that ever been done to you. Was it, was it a Christian that did it? Maybe, maybe it was. Stuff happens, it's okay. Love says, I will keep no record. I will forget. No record of wrongs. Who has done you wrong? Our example is Jesus, who keeps no record of our wrongs. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 103, 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your transgressions from you. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. That's love. Next, next week we'll finish the descriptors of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. Father, we thank you that in everything we do, you call us to love. And I pray, God, that we would depend on it, your supernatural power to love. And we thank you in Jesus' name.